Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this episode. Today's conversation is a part of a special series in connection with the theme of our upcoming Merck conference, The Promise of Public Education, Connecting Research Policy and Practice in a New Era. So what do we mean by the promise of public education in a new era? Public schools have been designed to meet a range of ambitious goals critical to the health and stability of our country. They promise opportunities for social mobility, to develop skills that lead to fulfilling vocation and economic livelihood, and to instill dispositions and critical thinking skills essential for democratic citizenship. Although elements of these foundational principles may endure, recent events have shed light on how this promise has, in many cases, been unfulfilled, particularly for different student populations. Over the past year and a half, we have seen the COVID-19 pandemic disrupt nearly every aspect of public schools, forcing educators and students to rapidly adapt to a new and uncertain environment. At the same time, international social movements promoting racial justice have called upon school systems to re-examine policies and practices in pursuit of greater equity for their students and community. Whatever the future may bring, public education finds itself at an inflection point where we can reimagine its purposes and possibilities. For each episode in this series, we will explore a fundamental element in public education, discuss how it has been impacted by the events of the past year and a half, and share our vision for what it could be moving forward. In this episode, we are discussing student services in a new era and have invited local experts who can speak best to where we might go from here. Let me introduce everyone to you now. James Kerrigan is the School Social Work Supervisor for Hanover County Public Schools. He has been a school social worker for 17 years in Virginia and a licensed clinical social worker for 20 years. Donna Dockery is the Director of Clinical Practice and an Associate Professor in the Department of Counseling and Special Education in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University. Prior to coming to VCU, she was a high school counselor in Central Virginia for 15 years. Alex Peskin is a rising junior in the class of 2023 at Goochland High School in Goochland County Public Schools. He is active in student government, and this upcoming school year will be his third as president of his graduating class. He is also involved with various other clubs and honor societies within the school. Shanita Williams is a school social worker in Henrico County Public Schools and a PhD student in educational leadership, policy, and justice at Virginia Commonwealth University. She has 24 years of experience as a school social worker and is a licensed clinical social worker. Lauren Wynn is the coordinator of school counseling services in Chesterfield County Public Schools. Over the last 24 years, she has served as an elementary, middle, and high school counselor, a counselor educator, and district-level counseling supervisor. She is also a licensed professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. Erica Daniels is a school counselor at Vernon Johns Middle School in Petersburg City Public Schools. She is also a doctoral candidate at Regent University in counselor education and supervision. Before I came to Merck, I was a high school counselor for four years. So this conversation that we're going to be having today is really near and dear to my heart. I also can say that over those four years serving as a counselor, I learned a ton. And so to be on a call with people who have been doing this for decades, I can only imagine the kind of expertise that you're bringing to this conversation. So I'm so excited to have folks from five different school divisions here and VC represented. This is going to be a great discussion. Um, And because we're talking specifically about student services I want to bring in a student perspective first. So Alex, what was it like to be a high school student over the past year and a half? So my school offered a hybrid learning plan, which led some students into the building and on on certain days and others in on other certain days. And uh, but I stayed virtual throughout the year. And I would say being virtual definitely brought on a lot of new challenges. I think it put a lot more pressure on students to kind of reach out and ask for help and advocate for themselves, which some weren't maybe used to. And it kind of uh, pushed them to do that. 
I think it also made it a lot harder to connect with teachers on and other students on a personal level because it was virtual and like there just wasn't that class interaction that there used to be. And it uh it definitely made like big clubs and uh projects or big projects in clubs a lot harder to execute. I remember one that comes to mind. I'm in a call, club called Base, and uh, one of the goals of a committee I was in in Base was to create informational videos on topics like stereotypes and microaggressions. And we had an original timeline of videos and it just kept getting pushed back because um, we, we contacted students for emails and they just wouldn't respond. And it just, it's a lot harder to do it in a virtual setting where you can't just see somebody in the hallway and ask them what's their like progress on something. So I think COVID definitely brought a lot more challenges that weren't there when it was in person. Alex, how do you make that decision? So if there was a, a hybrid model for potentially being in person, but potentially being online. I'm just curious, like, how do you eventually arrive at the decision to be remote for the school year, get, given the kinds of challenges that you just described? Like, did you talk about that with your friends ahead of time? Did you make the decision with your parents? How did you sort of land on that decision? So um, I definitely talked to my friends and family. With my friends, a lot of them opted to stay virtual too. I think a majority, uh, at least for the first three marking period, stayed virtual. I think in the fourth marking period, it was more split, but I think it was still a majority virtual. And then with my family, I think the main factor for me was just health concerns for my parents. I didn't want to end up bringing anything home. And especially when it was like during the winter months, when it was like getting like really scary and like it was a lot, it was, it's still serious, but when it was like really serious, it just was a big concern for me that I didn't want to bring anything home. So I think the decision kind of arrived on just talking with them and then talking with my friends who also had some similar concerns and brought those to light. And uh, that's how I landed on my decision to stay virtual. The teachers were also really like great with virtual. And that's another reason why I chose to stay virtual throughout the year. They all offered extra help and office hours every day. And if I ever needed any help, I could email them and they'd get in a Google meet with me. And I, that's probably why I was able to be successful in the virtual setting. And I credit a lot to the teachers and Guzman. And what's the plan for the upcoming year for you? Uh, for the upcoming year, I, and I think of like big majority of our school, I think there's really few staying virtual. Um, are going back in person. And I think as of right now, I know a decision's coming up in our school board on masks, but I think as of right now, it's no masks in three feet or maybe with masks in three feet. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that I'm going to be in person. And I think if you chose to be virtual this year at Goochland, you're a part of something called Virtual Virginia. So it's still through Goochland, but I think it's through that program and not necessarily Goochland teachers like it was last year. Alex, what I think is really interesting about your experience is you, your freshman year, was your freshman year the 1920 school year? Um, yeah, so I, COVID hit in the March of my freshman year. So I had wow. a normal freshman year up until March. Wow. So you've had some normal high school experience and then this experience now during COVID and then hopefully you're at least the second half of your junior year and then your senior year will hopefully be normal again. So how do you think this sort of experience during the pandemic will be like, how do you think you'll reflect on this? when you're looking back on your high school experience? Looking back, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of um, just kind of regret almost socially because I feel like being a, like in high school is just, it's a lot. And to kind of miss out on that being virtual, it's, it's not fun. But I also think I gained a lot of skills that I wouldn't have otherwise. I think my communication skills got better because it kind of forced me to talk with teachers and kind of reach out when I needed help and really like advocate for myself. And I think it also taught me a lot about mental health and strategies to kind of keep myself going in a virtual setting when it's not all around people. Cause it definitely was, there were a lot of challenges and it could get really lonely at times just being at home and like behind a computer screen. So I definitely think I gained some skills from it, but 
ultimately, I really hope uh, senior year and the rest of junior year can be normal. Yeah, I think we all hope that. So what I'm hearing from Alex's experience is there was a lot of challenges, but also a lot of resilience. So kind of reflecting on what what Alex was just saying, I want to hear from the practitioners on this call. Starting with you, Shanita, what did it take to serve your students uh, since the start of the pandemic? And how has this been different than your approach in the past? Yeah. So and in, in just thinking about what Alex was sharing and um, talking about this period of not being with friends, and then feeling at times also isolated because they're, you know, students were behind a screen. You know, when I when I think about that question, you know, <laughs> it was about creativity and connection, but also a calm. So I I kind of put it in my brain, I guess, that way. And so I, I found myself trying to think of innovative ways to connect and stay connected with students and families um, that. I serve. So creating activities for students that supported them socially and emotionally that they could do at home by themselves or with family using video to schedule meetings and hold meetings in lieu of telephone because of the absence of physical presence. So I was more conscious of wanting to be on video with students and um, families as opposed to just taking a phone call. So um, having students, you know, be able to actually see, you know, my face and, and when they did turn their camera on their face as well. Um, but scheduling drop-in sessions, and I also called them pop-up sessions for students and teachers who were experiencing various losses during this time. Um, using technology for collaborating with community agents, agencies to connect students and families. I found that the technology piece created opportunities for increased parent and family engage, um, participation in school meetings. So parents were, in many instances, better able, I guess, to participate in a meeting because they might've been at work and they could step outside for a few minutes or they had a lunch break and it was just, it was more convenient for, for families. And then being able to get a family in schools and a community agency kind of in the same virtual room, that was helpful as well. And the calm piece, I think, is, is for me was about um, being able to reassure or, or trying to have some level of reassurance that it was going to be okay. And that we as a school would work with stu students and families to connect and provide them with the necessary resources um, and support. So, Lauren, how about you in Chesterfield? So much of what Shanita just shared resonates in Chesterfield. We're neighbors, you know, so we were facing really similar things, I think. And doing a lot of the things that Shanita just described. I am, my role is a little different. I'm not in a school. I am a central office person who empowers the work of all of our local school counselors. And so, um, and I have about 200 plus counselors. And so all of their situations are different and they're all serving different people with different resources at their disposal. And our learning environment changed at different points in the year. We started virtual at the beginning of the year. So obviously March was just the shutdown. And then we figured out how to be virtual-ish and got really a lot better at it. I think, I think um, for us, professional development was so key to be able to empower our counselors to be able to find new ways to connect. So when Shanita talked about how do you do that, um, our counselors also figured out that phone calls were a great way to stay in contact. It wasn't our traditional way 
but actually anything where you could actually see a person had a much more powerful impact. And so we were teaching people how to do videos and we were teaching people how to do Google Meets and we were teaching people you know, just how to um, make the most of the limited time that families had to connect and support their students. And so all of that transformed. We went from virtual and in October, we went to the hybrid model that was similar to what Alex described. And then we went back to virtual and then we got to March and we invited students back and we're happy to see students come back but a majority of our students actually stayed in learning from home scenarios. So we were doing concurrent programming where we were doing some things face-to-face, -face but socially distanced, and some things were still totally tech-driven. Um, so people had to be really flexible. And, you know, because it was constantly evolving and then everybody needed something a little bit different, right? So, you know, the the flashlight that shined on equity, like equity was the lens through or the filter through which we conceptualized every movement that we made. Mm. And even though equity is one of our core values in Chesterfield and, and in all of the Merck school divisions, um, it, I mean, we all got a crash course in that. It was everybody's first year all over again, because we had to relearn how to do our jobs on a granular level. Uh, but it, but every decision we made was through an equity lens. Like, how are we helping make sure that all kids can access school? How are we making sure, as Alex said, that people could really engage in this new way of learning and that kids could learn from anywhere? Um, and another piece that we had to really hone in on was um, the well-being of adults. You know, we, we define ourselves as student support services professionals, but really we're also still working with the very important adults that are in our students' lives. And we have to find all of these new, clever, creative, connected ways to support them. Because if the adults were doing well, the adults at home and the adults at school, that would increase the likelihood that our students were doing better. Um, sometimes like old, like old processes, you know, like how do we determine if a student is safe and how do we make sure that a student is on track for graduation? Um, we know how to do that in our sleep. That's like muscle memory kind of stuff for a lot of people who are seasoned. Mm -hmm. Then we would get caught. Like occasionally somebody would call me on the phone and be like, I'm worried about a student for whatever reason. And I don't know what to do next. And I mean, this would be a super seasoned counselor. And I would say, well, let's go back to the beginning of it. Tell me exactly sort of what are the, what are the variables that you're trying to think about as you're determining your approach. And I think sometimes it's just the being in the new world made us forget that we could still do what we needed to do. Mm -hmm. We just had to find workarounds. And sometimes if one piece was something that we couldn't do, in a traditional way, it would throw us off for a minute. And we actually got better at that. But in the beginning, we would get stuck sometimes. People would really get really fixated on a part that we couldn't do and it would stop them. And then I would say, no, just put that down and keep moving forward. Like begin with the end in mind. What do we hope to accomplish by intervening in this way? And, and everybody got through that. Mm. Um, I don't know, it just, it, there no aspect of our job wasn't affected. 
And, and that was a strange way of saying that, like everything was impacted. And, um, and, and really we did, I said it before, we had to get out of our own way. Mm. Once we did that and allowed ourselves to think outside of the box, we were really moving and grooving again. James, how about you? You're in a similar supervisory role in Hanover. Yeah, and I think in addition to what everyone's already mentioned, I think the three things that stuck out for me was the perseverance, the grace, and the significant amount of time it took for planning for so many alternatives, because there were so many unknowns from the start of the pandemic. And as educators, and specifically as support staff to students and families that we serve, we had to accept that there were answers that were not always clear. They were undefined, um, but we had to keep moving forward and we had to plan for so many eventualities. Um, however, um, for me, the one thing that stands out as different is there was a transition and I mentioned this, there was a transition from a focus primarily on instructional practices in schools, um, which is a foundation of education, to a shared focus of instruction and the social emotional well-being of students, families, our communities, and even as Lauren mentioned, school staff and faculty. Um, and we really made that transition to a holistic approach to support because it was a priority in education that had not been there prior to the pandemic. Um, and in Hanover, um, we were in a unique position where we presented students with the opportunity to have full-time face-to-face instruction five days a week from the first day of school and the opportunity similar to what Alex mentioned, a full-time five days a week um, online virtual education. So we had those unique opportunities where we had staff members that were supporting schools in the traditional way, five days a week, with all of the things that came along with the pandemic, wearing masks, all the you know mitigation strategies for safety and health, in addition to supporting thousands of students in an online environment as well. Mm -hmm. So our school social workers, our school psychologists, all of the support staff had to, to Lauren's point, be flexible and transition and you know, continue trying to adapt to the face-to-face -face environment while also learning all of the context and challenges that went along with trying to follow up with students and families um, in an online world, in a virtual world. Um, and I think something that Alex mentioned as a student and that, that was interesting and eye-opening to hear is as a student, to have the experience of things taking longer, getting responses from his you know, fellow students and following up and how long that would take. S similar experiences with following up with families who were having challenges with attendance or with other um, barriers that were occurring for their families. The follow-up and the time that it took to try to reach them and get feedback from them especially from the online students, um, was a challenge. So it was just a lot of perseverance and working through those challenges, but also recognizing that everyone was giving a lot of grace. You know, there was a lot of like, 
hey, we're we're all experiencing this for the first time. And it's like, hey, similar to what Alex said, like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't get right back to you. I think we all had a better understanding of we are all trying to juggle a lot um, and just having a lot of grace and understanding and, and really coming together was a big part of the experience. Erica, how about you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so much of what has already been said has been kind of um, my experience also. And one of the things that I know was um, difficult for me as a school counselor was the feeling of having to relearn my job. You know, I had been a counselor for 13 years and um, I had to relearn and rethink almost every aspect of what um, I was doing and how I supported students and how I and supported my team and how I function as a leader in the school. So, so much of what came naturally over time was disrupted. And so I really had to spend sometime kind of rethinking everything that I was doing, just reflecting on so many unknowns that you guys have already talked about. You know, how do we support students? How do we engage them? How do we build relationships with them? And when I came to Vernon Johns to Petersburg City Schools, um, I came in a January of 2020. And then in March, we were closed. Um, and so it was my first time at a middle school, I was in the building for seven weeks, and then we closed close. And then I had to relearn how to be a school counselor. So it was very overwhelming initially. And so my first full year in a middle school was a virtual school year up until about April when we did have some of our students to come back into the building. So that aspect of being a school counselor where you have to adapt to everything um, and be super flexible was certainly a thousand times more important um, at this point in, in, in the pandemic. And so we think about uh, what does virtual school counseling look like? What does that mean for our students? What does that mean for our parents? So we you know, had to embrace this newness in communicating and um, providing creative connections like Shanita talked about with our students and with our families. What I've learned, um, and Alex, you touched on this as well, is the increased amount of advocacy, student advocacy, um, and how they had to advocate for themselves. So we spent quite a bit of time really supporting our students and how to be good self-advocates during this pandemic and this virtual learning experience. Also, you know, recognize that building relationships with students was a little bit more difficult. And when you think about um, middle school age students and their developmental level and what they're going through and experiencing, um, you know, they definitely need that extra support and guidance as they figure out who they are. And so trying to do that virtually was a little bit of a struggle. Um, and then just be, having access to students as well. So we talk about that equity piece and making sure that all students had access to technology. Um, so in, in Petersburg, we initially did classroom sets of, um, of Chromebooks. And so we had to quickly figure out how do we get every student in our district a Chromebook? And for those who did not have internet access at home, how do we get the abundance of Wi-Fi hotspots for those families? And one of the things that I 
um, and my team and a lot of others, the student support staff in the district, the increased amount of um, home visits, right? You think that we wouldn't go to a home because of the pandemic, but they need resources and they need supports as well. Um, and so when I'm working with students um, in a normal situation, you're coming to my office, I have fidgets, I have bubbles, I have things that you have access to, you know, to ground you, to get you stable, to get you back so we can have a, a conversation and make some good decisions. Now I need to bring those things to your home so that we can learn how to do them together with you at home and me, you know, either in my office or at my home for that matter. Um, and so the, all of those things we had to adjust to. And then this notion of um, increased self-care. And so while we as support staff are dealing with, you know, making sure our students are taken care of and encouraging our staff and pro promoting wellness in our building, we also had to take care of ourselves. And so what I found was an increased need and desire for my personal self-care, you know, working from home, caring for my own family who's still in the house with me as I'm trying to work from home and assist you know, um, my 12-year-old stepson with his virtual learning. Um, and, and so all of those things combined, um, you know, we just had to really strategically figure out how to do our jobs, do them effectively, and also take care of ourselves. It's been a year and a half of adaptability and flexibility for sure. Donna, I'm hoping that you could bring some research perspective to our conversation. What does the research tell us about the importance of supporting student mental health in schools? Well, it's really interesting because everybody that's spoken so far has really aligned with what our research is saying, right? That this has been an unprecedented year. We're still moving into year two, almost year three of this, and that we've got to care for the caregivers, as Erica just said. You know, uh, James talked about that flexibility and being nimble and being responsive, and we need to meet those individual needs. And at the same time, we're, we're so clear now on some of the disparities that we've always known as helping professionals are there. And we have kiddos in our building who are underserved regarding their mental health needs and mental health support. And that's so much more clear now so that our students of color and um, you know, our English language learners and our students with disabilities uh, in some ways maybe really struggled through the pandemic. And we had to take an extra look at where we're getting them the support they needed. Uh, students whose family lost an income or all income, you know, that we've got to pay attention to supports and that early intervention really matters so that the train has left the station. We understand that importance of social and emotional support in school. There was already a push for what are we looking at regarding school climate and trying to work away from that punitive discipline model to a climate of care. So, you know, the research says, you know, getting back into school with restorative justice models, with trauma-informed practices, with providing grace not only to the caregivers in the community at home and at school, for our frontline teachers, for the young people that we need to, uh, you know, build in time for those transitions. Let's not add additional stress with just ramping up the academic expectations. Mm -hmm. Let's stay with, I was um, touched at how many schools really tried to adopt an evidence-based practice for social and emotional support during the pandemic, along with everything that was going on, knowing that young people needed that. And the research is saying that we need to, you know, provide care, transition in, uh, deal with 
whole groups, look at our subpopulations who are struggling and look at it from a strength-based model. You know, a lot of students uh, in some of our divisions, the students of color or the students of limited lower income backgrounds, um, the English language learners, the students with disabilities were less engaged. But some of the research when they drilled down said, wait a minute, Parents of kids of color, some of them really liked online learning because some of the historical oppressive systems in schools were not there for them. So they really embraced this. And maybe some of our students with disabilities function better because they had a caregiver at home. They weren't having the outbursts or the social um, tension that sometimes they experience in school. So there are these white lights of positive and promise in the learning and let's play on that. Many of the school folks I've talked to and the researchers saying this, that we're not gonna move away from having a virtual platform, which can be supportive for all kinds of learners in particular situations, but that let's not also lose sight of some of our students with disabilities, ELL learners, students in rural or urban areas who didn't have great um, internet access or uh, Wi-Fi access will need to have their gaps filled, but let's do that with patience and with grace. Um, you know, the, the notion about PBIS and looking at school-wide supports with our helping professionals playing a lead in that and helping to make sure that we're not just providing punitive intervention, but really caring for individuals and drilling down to the individual level. Some of the universal screening for how we know stress, right? Anxiety, depression, OCD tendencies look like they've increased through this last year in our older population, but particularly in our K-12 population and research, we know early detection intervention works. So how do we provide the care that we need to and screen that we need to at that individual level? I loved Erica's comments. The other thing, um, when you read the literature, yes, there was that social connectivity that was lost. Some young people were able to find that in the way they connect with others just virtually, but that individual connections in some ways perhaps didn't in Proved. And some parents and youth were reporting, hey, I can reach out to my teacher one-on-one. -on -one. I'm not embarrassed to ask a question. I can see my counselor, you know, virtually and don't have to worry about who's going to crash into that in the school building. So that um, I think looking for those positive pieces and infusing those more throughout will be really helpful to do. I, you know, my background is high school counseling. And I think about the early adolescents that Erica talked about, and then the high school students, many of them feeling like we, they've been a part of this period of great awareness and awakening of what's happening regarding race relations in the US and around the world, this movement, and they want to have that addressed and talked about and to understand where they are, where they're situated in a world that's rapidly changing. So having honest conversations and, and you know about race and equity and about you know where we're headed as a nation and their role in advocacy and their role politically, I think is so important as a part of their total health and well-being. So their voices aren't underheard. And we're seeing our Asian population, right? You know, many of them attended virtually more than any other subgroup all year long. And are their needs being met with all that's happening regarding this pandemic and targeting our Asian American students and families? So I think, you know, a, attending to the entire school needs are important, but our subgroups and then drilling down to that individual level just to see how those students are doing and providing good support is gonna be so imperative. And again, I think that momentum was is continuing and it started before the pandemic. So it's an exciting time to be an educator and a support person, you know, in in uh, the social emotional needs of students and their mental well-being and health. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think there's a new normalization about talking about these things. It's okay for us to say this has been hard. 
and for parents and guardians to acknowledge that, that we don't have to be perceived as being perfect. And I think that role modeling, normalizing, there's time to see a counselor, to see a helping professional. Their support for what's emerging for you is so important. I'm hoping those conversations don't go away because that is our new normal. Life has been very stressful. I'm also excited about some of the benefits I've been reading about. Young people are home with a sibling often benefited because they took on an emerging leadership role or a, 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 you know helped their parents in ways that they didn't have the social growth they might need. With peer support, maybe things happen differently in their home setting for some of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, I like here at VCU, they've had meetings, what do you want to do as we emerge? I'm hoping we could incorporate student voice. That's going to be important for their uh, mental health and well-being as we move to transitioning back in face-to-face or in and out, whatever's going to happen, that student voice becomes so important with, again, that caveat that it may take time, it may take patience, not everyone's going to have equal access, how do we tap into that? And I'm just really proud to be, you know, among colleagues in Central Virginia who've been there on the front line supporting young people, as we've seen emergency room visits for mental health needs really going up across the country and in Virginia, because the caregivers in school haven't been there to kind of help identify and, um, and push things forward. So um, I'm looking forward to this transition. I think mean, the research indicates what we're talking about in Central Virginia and uh, across the state, right? Increasing the numbers of school counselor ratios or mm-hmm. decreasing the ratios that we have more school counselors, more mental health support in school. Um, I think all of that is really positive and in alignment with practice based on what we're seeing in the research. Right. So maybe we'll see some kind of renewed and urgent investment in, in student support services in schools moving forward. Uh, James, how does this research resonate with your work in Hanover? Well, I think as a clinician, before I came to work in the schools, you know, we, we focus on providing strategies and skills to avoid students and, and adults from having more significant concerns. In my years in education, it is often felt as if you know, that support for mental health has been guided, and this was just mentioned by Donna, to students identified with disabilities. The school community as a whole appears at times to respond to mental health or has historically in a reactionary way. But the pandemic, the social unrest, the social shifts over the last 18 months have given us all a new perspective on how we really need to be proactive in serving all members of our community by putting supports in place. And and Donna mentioned this with the research as well, putting supports in place and monitoring their success. And as an example, as a supervisor, you know, as a member of our school division, social emotional learning team, which was put in place this last summer, the division's school social workers worked in collaborations with school-based teams as well, with their administrators, teachers, exceptional educators, the school counselors, school psychologists, our school nurses who were across the state extraordinary um, during the pandemic, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, all of those professionals who support our students, we've all gained a better appreciation for the necessity of mental health supports in schools. In Hanover, twice during the past year, our division provided a universal screener for students, staff, and faculty to better assess the needs in individual schools and across the division. It was really enlightening to see the concerns that were present in individual schools and our community as a whole, but it was also reinforcing that many of our schools had created safe learning environments for students, but those screeners gave us guidance on how 
we can improve in areas related to mental health, but also continuing to provide the necessary supports to make all stakeholders feel safe and well from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that helps their mind be clear and available to learn, which Mm -hmm. is our responsibility as, as educators as well. Yeah, we have to be extra mindful of things like compassion fatigue right now, for sure, for our student support staff. Um, Eric, I'm curious, in, in your role as a middle school counselor in Petersburg, what have you noticed about how the needs of your students have changed over the past year and a half? Um, yeah, and so I think prior to the pandemic, I think there has been an increase in um, just mental health concerns and challenges um, of our youth in general. And I think that the pandemic may have definitely shown more light on those areas that we haven't fully addressed and how we support our students, especially um, educationally, especially in the schools. I do feel that there has been an overall increase during this pandemic for the simple reason that when I when I reflect on my students in Petersburg, um, some of my kids are living in and reliving their traumatic environments and where school may have been that peaceful setting for them, that outlet for them, that just moment where they can, you know, take a deep breath and say, okay, I have these, you know, six, seven hours of just calm and peace, I no longer have that. And so now I have 24 seven of, you know, this chaotic situation that increases my anxiety, um, my depression, my suicidal ideation. Uh, And so we have to, you know, increase the um, number of of, uh, wraparound supports and do wellness checks and things like that. So we've had an increase in just that kind of responsiveness to support our students. So, you know, to answer your question, yeah, there, there certainly has been an increase during the pandemic. And I think that we've also had challenges of addressing needs and seeing and actually seeing their home life on Zoom, you know, and just situations. We've had a few situations like that where we're seeing our kids' background, their their lived living environments. Um, we're hearing how family members are communicating and things like that. And you know, you see something, you say something, right? And so now we are placing this responsibility in this position to be responsible for the information that we have. Whereas, you know, when they're in the school building, we may or may not know. So it's been an interesting dynamic change in how we support our students and our responsiveness to, to situations that we may not have been exposed to before in this way. You know, and when we think about the the pandemic and the other things that has taken place, the protests and racial justice that's taken place, you know, with some of our students, I do feel that they can be a little disconnected from their outside environment because they're so focused on what's going on inside their immediate environment. Um, and so there wasn't a in, in our context, a whole lot of expression of racial injustices and just conversation. Um, our teachers did a wonderful job with um, addressing those things in the classroom. We provided them lots of resources and how to engage these conversations with our students. They wanted to have those conversations. I think the biggest thing that was talked about is just the pandemic itself and just the challenges related to that and how how they've lost family members, a lot of grief and loss. So we've done a lot of grief counseling and grief support 
for our students being in one of the most vulnerable health districts in this state. Um, we always have that kind of thing resting on our shoulders of making sure that our kids are safe, that even if we go out into the homes that we're safe, um, even when we brought the kids and some of the kids back into the building, just being very, very overly conscious of those things. Um, and so just knowing that our kids are a little bit on edge and our parents are on edge as well about how do I send my kid back? Um, you know, with this Delta variant, it has increased our enrollment in that virtual Virginia as well, because um, we've had, we had a cutoff and we even have more parents calling and asking because they're concerned about sending their kids back into the school building. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this general fear and frustration um, regarding the pandemic for everyone, the fear of school being closed again and having to be fully virtual, the fear of having to go another year and trying to learn virtually and it's not my preferred style of learning. I need to be in front of the teacher. Um, fear and frustration related to the social impact and socialization components of being a middle school student who needs to be around other peers and need to be, you know, learn to how do I become who I'm going to become, essentially? And then also the fact that they're continuing to deal with their traumas. You know, a lot of the kids need to come back to school to get out of those environments and feel safe again. Um, and so a lot of our kiddos are dealing with that as well. And are there any particular strategies you've picked up in the last year and a half as you've been adapting to these new circumstances that you think you'll be using moving forward, like any kind of positive lessons learned? Yeah, I think I think the most I think there there are three things that come to mind initially is extending and accepting grace everywhere because it continues to change. And as the um you know, what the, the health department tells us based on what the state tells us, based on what our school division tells us, we just have to continue to be flexible and adjust and just extend that grace across the board, even to, especially to ourselves as we learn how to, you know, maneuver through this time. Patients also, because a lot of the questions that we have, we don't all have answers to just yet. Um, and so I think it increases our levels of just frustration and anxiety um, about how to effectively support our students. And so we just need to um, also be patient. And again, as I said in the very beginning, that flexibility is, is so, so crucial to my role as a school counselor. You know, at times I can be very kind of like, I need to know right now so I can make a decision. And so I've learned through this pandemic to be uh, so flexible, um, not only professionally, but also personally as well. So that trickle over has uh, been a benefit all around as well. And I think the advocacy piece as a school counselor, as a school counselor leader in my building um, and in the district as well, um, I'm a member of the uh, social emotional support team in Petersburg City Schools. And so we work together Together to you know promote the wellness, promote the social emotional learning, and all of those things, but to continue to be a strong advocate because I think that we have to address the social emotional needs of our students before they can actually learn ac academically, uh, and so that's the foundation of of my belief system um, and those that I work with on that team um, and really pushing that agenda forward to make sure that we're all really supporting our students in that way. And then also just the use of technology in general. I think um, uh, there has been so many creative things that I've had to do this past school year to access my students 
um, and to support the teachers as well um, and how they respond and react to students um, when there's a crisis, when there's a, you know, a behavioral situation, uh, when we go into the classrooms for um, virtual classroom lessons, um, you know, recording things and sharing them with teachers to share with the students. So just using technology in a variety of different ways. And then one of the last things that I will continue to do, and we actually have prepared to do this, this coming school year, is we recognize that when the students are with us, in the building, like, and we have access to certain things in our offices to, you know, work with our students individually, um, like I said, bubbles, coloring, things like that, um, is to provide these things to our students so that they can have these kits at home as well. Um, and so we created thousands of calming kits to go home with our students so that they can have these resources at home as well. So we show them how to use them when they're with us and then they can have these things at home to calm themselves, to ground themselves. So providing our students those skills um, towards regulation mm -hmm. um, that might be helpful for them, um, especially you know, return, coming back into school and then returning back into, you know, some of them might be going back into difficult situations, so. Mm -hmm. Alex, after hearing about some of the experiences of students in Petersburg, I'm curious how this maybe resonates with your experiences in Goochland for you and some of your classmates. I would say that a lot of it is similar in Goochland, especially the extra grace and the patience and the flexibility. Uh, teachers have been great this year with deadlines and especially tech support because it's been definitely a journey to figure out how to do all the virtual stuff online. There's also been a lot of new strategies. Uh, at Gushin that I think have been really cool to do for the at-home learning. One thing that comes to mind is uh, for my gym class, they gave out a, like kits of uh, materials. I think it was like bands and some um, other things to work out at home. And it was paired with this uh, app called Platform. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with it. And it was a really great experience, actually, because gym is obviously something we couldn't do uh, in the school. But they had a lot of programs like yoga and also mindfulness that went along with the physical exercise. So I think that was a really cool strategy. And we also had something called Wellness Wednesdays, which promoted mental health and was kind of a way to reach out to students um, via Schoology. And I think a lot of strategies like this uh, will continue. And I think a lot of students are really grateful for it, uh, especially at Goochland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's probably a lot of this that kind of resonates throughout our region. So I'm, I'm glad that we're able to, to maybe share some of these resources with each other. Um, Lauren, thinking about your experience as a school counselor coordinator in Chesterfield, what have the counselors in your division needed to be able to support students remotely as well as in person over the last year and a half because Chesterfield's been doing both? My immediate reaction is that, and I think I said this earlier, but everybody needed something different. You know, just like our, all of our kids need different supports to be successful, all of the adults who worked in support of them did too. And that was really true for the school counselors. I think, I think professional development was essential to us thriving and thriving and continuing to serve at high levels. I, um, I like a good professional development annual plan. You know, there's a part of me that is still very much an in the school school counselor. And I like to know what my counseling curriculum is going to be for the year ahead of the year, because there's a lot that we can guess about, right? Like we know because of developmental theory, we know there are certain transitions that require certain types of supports. And all of that was still true. You know, we still had kids that were in eighth grade who needed to complete their academic and career plan. 
And we still had kids who needed to apply to college and the other post-secondary options they were interested in. You know, there, we still had kids that needed schedules created for the next school year. Um, we still had all of our K-12 career development work that we do. And, um, but then at, pretty early on, I stated to my team, I'm reserving the right to not have it all figured out. And I hope that you'll follow my lead and just be open to the fact that we don't really have it all figured out. Let's see also what emerges. So like, I'm gonna help you do the traditional things in different ways by offering PD about technology. And you know, there was already some little bits of work that were happening in the school counseling field about flipped school counseling, where you would deliver a classroom lesson that you recorded in advisement, you know, through a recording. And then in, you know, one 30 minute span of time, all of 10th grade got the same lesson. And you did that maybe in collaboration with the teacher who was leading it. I mean, that's not a new model, but we tend to like to go in and be with kids. Like we love our students. And so really helping people remember what that was that we learned about a little bit in graduate school and to do it with the clear invitation to, if you want to talk more about this, if you need more different something else, this is how you reach out. We're going to have a related Google meet now on Wednesday. We had wellness Wednesdays too, for a period of time and come join us and we'll have small group chats. And if in the small group, we figure out that you need more individualized attention, we're going to then at that point schedule something more with you as an individual related to your specific needs. And, you know, what does that cycle look like? So some of the professional development was really formal. The VDOE was amazing, I felt, like in support of school counseling and student support services. We got together monthly and um, we would crowdsource and idea share and they would spotlight. And I really used a similar model in how I was delivering information. So I would share some things directly from VDOE that counselors all over the state were doing differently in response to the changing needs. Um, but then we sort of took that model on and I do a weekly email every week that is really essentially just written a written professional development opportunity. And sometimes I would put recordings in there from other people. And sometimes it would be things that I recorded, like listen to this idea or let me spotlight so-and-so at this school who has figured out how to push into a morning meeting or this middle school or high school team that's using advisement in a creative way or this nugget of an, a way of reaching out to your students who you have figured out from analyzing use of our learning management platform, who's not accessing their coursework. You know, and how do you do that? And you can send a, we could send videos out to all the kids that we identified who had low engagement on Canvas. Mm. Just, and, and it seemed like it was going to them directly individually, but it was actually going to all the kids. And it was a video, just like we talked about earlier. Hey, listen, I'm worried because we can tell that you're not using this. And I'm wondering if there's something that I can do to be helpful for some this a new learning management platform that we were transitioning into use as the pandemic was opening up. Hmm. You know, so no one was a hundred percent on how to use Canvas, but everybody knows how to use Canvas now, you know, like at high levels. Um, we also 
we're in the middle of transitioning to a new academic and career planning online platform. Hmm. That was happening alongside the pandemic and had nothing to do with the pandemic. So we were evolving in other ways. Um, and so the PD became a huge piece of doing that. The crowdsourcing, the like really saying, we can't all do everything because so many things take longer. And so we would, you know, instead of each high school doing a dual enrollment program at night for their families, we would do a lot of things centrally where we would pull representative counselors from the different high schools with central office folks and invite students and parents to participate in the webinar. And then we, you know, so, and then there was one instead of 11 happening all over the county. And then we would connect them back to their schools for more individualized attention and response and support mm. ended up being a huge gain for us. That's one of the ways that we'll never change. Like right. we're now as a result of figuring out how to do that using the collective brilliance of everybody um, in really efficient, effective ways. I, I would like to think they were effective. We got a lot of positive feedback and someone earlier mentioned how nice it was for parents to be able to just hop onto a meeting instead of driving halfway across the county to a central location. We'll continue to have big events in one place like a traditional college fair, but we're going to offer other options as well. Mm -hmm. Especially for a division like Chesterfield, which just geographically is huge. So it's, 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 yeah, providing a virtual option is, is really great. How do you feel like uh, the school counseling profession overall has been impacted over the last year and a half? I think we were well positioned going into the pandemic because of the work that the American School Counselor Association has done around the ASCA national model, you know, that way of developing and implementing and evaluating your program, like people knew their component parts really well. Mm. And they also, they knew that our counselors well, and counselors everywhere know we can't do our jobs well in a bubble. You know, we work systemically, it's collaborative. We have to be leaders as part of our work. If, you know, we're gonna help, if we're gonna be good advocates for students, families, staff members, all in support of the kids. But I think, I think that framework really helped mm -hmm. to work off of as a springboard. Like, let's remember who we are. And within that, in this really hard year, what are the most important things we can focus on? You know, so I said, we have ASCA, it's there, but, but really what do we still wanna do? We wanna keep kids safe, you know, physically and psychologically, you know, that's there in that model. Um, we want to help kids be connected to the people, the resources, the opportunities that they need. And then we also want all of our students to feel respected and, and we just always were running that through there. Like all of that is part of what our profession gives to us every day to work from. And we just, you know, I think it just, it just reiterated the importance of all of us across counties, across the state, across the United States to work from a common framework. So when kids are transferring around, because some of them were in the midst of this pandemic too, that we're all kind of doing the same thing um, I just, I'm going back to your question, without a doubt, I think the pandemic 
made us better. It like renewed our vows to what we know really works with kids. Like we need to work developmentally. We need to have whole child approaches. We need to be advocates. We need to partner well with people, um, community organizations, students. I love that Alex is a part of our meeting today. You know, I think student voice is gonna be, if we follow what the students say, we're gonna always land on the right side with them. Um, David, may I add? Please. Um, I think, you know, in just where we are as a profession and how the pandemic has impacted, us, you know, um, it, it brought two memories to mind um, that occurred during the pandemic. So um, as a um, as a counselor, as a doctoral student, I was a TA during the pandemic mm -hmm. and I TA'd an internship class. Um, and so, you know, the variety of um, experiences that were brought out of that internship class um, reminded me exactly what Dr. Wynn, what you said about how the pandemic has made us better, because we're going to have internship, um, we're going to have new school counselors who come into the profession, who are going to be um, prepared um, in a more global way to provide school counseling services to students and to communities, because, you know, ideally they, they get to get to understand what it's like to be a school counselor in person, but also get this wonderful nugget of how to be a virtual school counselor as well and how to integrate the two to create a more um, comprehensive school counseling program. Mm -hmm. And the second experience I had was I was also a site supervisor. I had a practicum and an internship student at Vernon Johns this past year. And again, we started that experience completely virtual then we transitioned to be in person and then our, some of our kids came back so they also got this wonderful unique perspective of what it means and how it means to function as a school counselor um, with this continuous transition continuing to be flexible and adaptable and learning these foundational skills in practice of what it means to be a school counselor um, and so what does that mean for the profession again we're going to be we're creating these new school counselors with this wonderful set of um, of skills to go into um, schools here in the very near future who can now say I have not only learned how to be a school counselor, but learn how to be a school counselor in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I have these skills to be able to promote the profession in a positive way. So I just wanted to add that piece. Yeah. And um, I, I have no doubt that the social work profession has changed as well. So James, thinking about the social workers in your division in Hanover, how have their needs changed to be able to respond to the changing needs of students in the division? Yeah. I, I think the first thing I'd like to say too, and Alex is been a really good example of this in some of his comments. I mean, it's important to start with the understanding that the children and adolescents that we serve and work with are inherently resilient. They have the ability to be resilient. And we as educators, and the pandemic has really brought this to light, we as educators can foster that resiliency and strengthen it, um, not only for the students, but also for our colleagues. Um, and I think from the school social work perspective, um, you know, the school social workers have been challenged 
to meet the increasing needs of the students in the community while having, as we've talked about, limited opportunities or restrictions on those interactions. And I know Alex had even talked about, you know, even trying to meet, um, you know, expectations or tasks and having those opportunities to touch base with people in the hallway and those safety measures that were put in place, even when we were physically in schools or even virtual have been a challenge. But in addition, resources have been a challenge to consistently be able to provide referrals or connections to services that truly meet the needs of the student or their families. And I, I perceive that as having made it a higher priority, and this was already mentioned as well, about maintaining self-care, because it can be disheartening. And as a, as a social worker, you know, to have the challenges when we're not able to meet the needs and we don't have an answer for a family who is really struggling or a student who is really struggling. And those perceived failures can really weigh on the mind. And you oftentimes take those home or you get off that call with a family or with a student and you're struggling not only because you're not able to meet their need or make a, an appropriate referral or connect them, but because you start taking that personally and, and really wanting to, to make a difference um, and support them in a way that is meaningful. Um, so really making sure of taking care of self um, is become a more important part of what we do. Um, and that can be difficult. Um, as I mentioned, when the, the needs of the community increase, but the hours in a day are static. You know, the increases are going up, but the amount of time that we have to, to really support goes down. So really finding a balance and meeting as many needs as you can um, and being able um, to care for yourself as well. But the, the benefit has been that it has really allowed a lot of opportunity for collaboration with those historically in the educational setting that we've not had connections with or have been less inclined to engage with. And, and I mean um, our community partners in the Department of Social Services, our community services board, um, even our court service unit, when we have students who are really struggling with behavior and you know that isolation and getting in the community and finding themselves in situations that are dangerous to themselves or others. So really working collaboratively for the social workers has been an important part of what has developed over the last 18 months which has been a positive because I think some of those agencies have not always communicated very well with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and this has really forced us to be able to serve our communities better by communicating with one another and recognizing, you know, that old adage that we don't work in silos, that we really need to break down those barriers and work together. Um, and I think for the social workers, in addition to, you know, all of my colleagues in school counseling, it really has been an opportunity to, to collaborate in new and exciting ways to meet the needs of our students, our families, our staff and faculty, and our communities and all stakeholders collectively. Well, let's check in with the other social worker that's on this call. Um, Shanita, you're, you're a social worker in Henrico County Schools. Uh, you're also a researcher, so I'm going to ask you to put both of those hats on. Okay. So starting with your researcher hat first, let's get granular. What does research say about specific student groups that we know have been particularly impacted by the last 
year and a half? Yeah, so research um, definitely suggests that there are some student populations that are more apt to experience increased significant challenges above and beyond what the overall student population may experience. And Donna alluded to some of this um, in her earlier response. So results of more recent literature is showing that there are some, you know, kind of specific nuanced experiences that you're going to see with, uh, as a result of the impact of COVID with respect to age, gender, race, ethnicity, culture, socioeconomic status, and among students who had pre-existing mental health needs, and this does include substance abuse, and also um, those who have pre-existing physical and, and medical challenges. So for example, when we think about developmental differences, preschool students uh, may regress in learned behaviors, elementary students may suddenly disengage with learning, and secondary school students may struggle with relationships. So when you look at gender, and this is inclusive male, female, non-binary, and non-gender conforming youth, these youth are experiencing anxiety, depression, stress, having difficulty with sleep, and also difficulty just managing and trying to adjust to periods of social, social isolation. Students of color and students living in poverty. So these students, student groups are already disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, and they are experiencing disproportionately high rates of COVID-19 stressors such as under-resourcing and a lack of access to health and care, which several have um, mentioned um, already. The, the thing that stood out um, for me in the research that we've been doing is the intentionality, I guess, of thinking about COVID-19 with respect to students of color and the fact that there's this other layer of systemic racism and structural inequalities. And so I really appreciated Donna's comment, just this idea of equity, right? And how in some ways COVID forced that to shine this light on something that was you know, already necessary and, and, and needed. And that you know, we're seeing playing out again with those students of color and students that live living in poverty. And so um, one study found that greater odds of psychological stress amongst students of low and medium socioeconomic status compared to students with, um, with you know, high economic status. And another student uh, study found that students who are eligible for free or reduced lunch, they were more significantly impacted with, with respect to being extremely or very worried about the pandemic, becoming infected with the, pan the, the virus mm -hmm. or a family member but also the financial stability of their family. And lastly, just students with pre-existing conditions. So I'm talking about mental health, substance use or abuse, but also students experiencing physical or, med or medical needs. They may experience an increase or intensification, right, in symptomatology. So if I can, I guess, can I switch my, put on my social work hat now? Please do. <laughs> so... So when I, you know, from a social work standpoint, I, I do want to just kind of piggyback off a little bit of what James shared and this idea of, you know, social work being predicated on the idea of social justice. Mm -hmm. And that is at the forefront of what we, what we do. And so a lot of things as a social worker that, um, and I don't know if James experienced this, but that we were seeing was like, oh no, we've been seeing that. We've been, you know, we've been saying this. And I think that's just how we are positioned in terms of the work that we do, that we you know we, we, we've been seeing this disproportionality of, of various student groups 
for years. And so glad that now everyone is seeing it, right? And so I, I think that that's going to help us moving forward. But over the past year, it's, it's been interesting because I've had several experiences with respect to these, uh, when I'm talking about these various student groups that we need to be thinking about, um, same groups that Donna um, also mentioned. Um, my experience has been students with pre-existing mental health needs. So those, again, students who were dealing with mental health prior to COVID, they're experiencing some significant declines in their mental health and increased stress as a result of how to ensure that they're not missing counseling sessions or therapy sessions, that, they're a, that they were able to have access to the psychiatrist, to the medication that they, that they needed. I've also encountered students and families who were experiencing mental health challenges for the very first time mm. as a result of the pandemic. Mm. And you know, the, the challenges for the student and family, you know, not just in terms of dealing with or how do I, you know, deal with um, this newness of, of, the, of, this, of this need, but do it in the midst of a pandemic. And the other um, consistent theme that I'm seeing is with respect to um, families overall, right? So homelessness, this um, doubling up of families, people who are, have now moved, people who have lost jobs, contacting parents, you know, to try to see, you know, how can I as a social worker support you? How can the school um, division support you? But contacting parents who, who are telling me I, they're at a loss. Hmm. They are, many of them are at a loss as to what to do because they have to work. They have to support their, their families. And at the same time, they were tasked you know, when we were really in the thick of it, and even now we're trying to, you know, sort out where we are with respect to school in the fall, but being torn between having to work and provide, and also how to support their children academically and emotionally during this time. Hmm. They were, you know, just trying, trying to have basic needs met. I, I had several parents who told me, I'm not there. I can't be there. Um, some, you know, a lot of parents were frustrated, right? They're like, why is the school calling me? <laughs> and I'm being honest, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm trying to make sure that we have a place to live. I understand um, that, you know, they're missing these virtual sessions. I understand that, but I'm not there. And I have to be able to provide for my family. So that was, that was really real um, for me, I think also for the division to be able to hear that and know that grace and mercy that we've all talked about thus far extends to the students, right? And also that the staff we wanted, but also to, also to our parents and our families who the school that I serve is um, a school where parents don't have, I'm gonna call it the luxury of being able to just take off. And so when we were able to accommodate them back to what I was saying earlier from a, you know using technology to, to invite a parent in we saw that participation. That was exciting for me because I think oftentimes as schools, we think parents don't want to be involved. They don't care because they can't be physically present. But not all parents have a, have a, a situation where they can take off of work mm -hmm. and not miss you know, time for money and, and all the good stuff. So the, um, the other, I, I do want to share, because this happened to me this, this actually this week, this past week. And speaking with the parent, you know, this child had done histor historically, had done well. There weren't any con concerns. I was reaching out because the student had, had not done well this past year. And the, the parent shared with me that during this time that the child had become depressed. And 
mom said that, you know, she was gainfully employed and, and decided to quit her job to have more flexibility to support the needs of her, of her child, which meant that she made the sacrifice that now I have to piece together these part, part-time jobs, right? And the family's now in a position where, you know, they may have to just move, you know, back to the state where, you know, where they're from because they don't have the support here. So we see this domino effect and 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 just how people are not affected just by the immediate impacts of COVID, but those secondary stressors that are as a result a result of COVID. So right, um, yeah. And there's there's just so much that we've learned over the last year and a half, and I'm I, I'm confident that school counseling and social work and just student services in general will will never be the same, and in a lot of ways, in a really good way because of all the positive things that we've learned over yeah. the last year and a half. There are so many takeaways from this conversation today. And I've been taking notes as folks have been talking about all the sort of positive things that we've learned over the last year um, and ideas moving forward. So um, renewed investment in student support staffing, um, recognizing how some of our students are really thriving online, showing grace and being flexible, um, integrating SEL into the curriculum more, using technology to support student mental health, providing resources that students can use at home for coping and emotional uh, regulation, providing wellness days for students and staff, virtual guidance lessons and advisement, crowdsourcing and resource sharing across the state, having a renewed emphasis on professional development. I'd like the idea of these division-wide webinars for parents. And Lauren, what you were saying, the idea of leveraging our collective brilliance. I love that idea. A commitment to not working in silos moving forward, prioritizing student voice and nurturing the existing resilience in students. So thinking about all these things that we've talked about today, what can we do to enact this new vision of student services moving forward? I hope that the listeners will hear that student support services professionals, the psychologists, the social workers, the counselors, the nurses, the mental health support specialists are really good partners as it relates to whole child approaches. You know, like, I hope we never lose that focus again. It, you know, we were all thrilled to be utilized and you in a different way. I hope we never lose that mental health is part of overall health and serves as the foundation for learning. Um, and I hope that we can continue to um, not just be responders, but real agents of prevention as it relates to student development, not student development as part of student support and that it can be balanced. Those would be my wishes. Yeah, and for me, the thing that I wanna walk away from this is in uh, the message that I'd like to make sure that's clear is that moving forward, the vision really is going to take a village. Um, as was just mentioned by Lauren, you know, we as support staff are, are proud of the work that we do, all of our professions and supporting students and families in our communities. But it goes beyond that. It's, it's all of the members of the schools, members of the community, and more globally, our government that provides the resources for us and make sure that we have a, a common goal that we may not always agree, but the resources have to be provided for us to meet the needs and the growing needs and the changing needs of our students. And this means that their care and well-being, um, as we've talked about and, and you've summarized, is holistic and extends beyond just the borders of a classroom or a school building. We are looking at providing supports that help our students become contributing members of society 
in a healthy way, both physically and mental health. But so James, like it's it's interesting that you that you say this. I'm gonna pick up and I'm gonna say it's it's about honestly assessing our current school-based mental health systems, right? Many of which we know were not adequately meeting the overall needs of students, specifically vulnerable populations, even before COVID. We need to think about staffing patterns, funding, where are we putting our money? Shout out to social workers again, because I think that oftentimes school social workers are overlooked in terms of the, um, our skill sets and considering partnering and actively collaborating with community based agencies. But there's, there's two other pieces that I think that that's gonna be critical as we move forward and we think about meeting the needs. It's about um, how we're implementing and how we're evaluating. I think those are key and um, research shows when, when we don't factor those into development, the implementation and the evaluation, a lot of the systems that we attempt to put in place do not work. And so that's gonna be um, a key piece in terms of meeting the needs of, mental health needs of students when we return and far beyond that. I think the importance of, of recognizing that we need to be proactive in our approaches as well and not just reactive. I think that oftentimes we find ourselves just responding to what's present in front of us. But I think now we have this light that has shone on our areas that need that extra support. And now we can move forward in being more proactive in how we collaborate um, how we implement, how we evaluate, like Shanita said, what we're doing in student services, and also just increasing the promotion and access to social emotional learning also. Petersburg, we have the uh, a social emotional learning curriculum that we recognize we needed before the pandemic. So it's all that more important now, now that we see this need and it helps us to be more proactive over time in addressing those needs of the students, which is the foundation to all academic learning. I'll just add in two cents worth of just augmenting what people have already said as well. In addition, the reminder that we've got to care for the caregivers and those coping packs that people are sending out to students, the online and face-to-face check-ins and one-on-one check-ins we do for our young people and the families. We might need to do those with each other and for each other and for our colleagues in our educational settings and how important that is because of we're in for the long haul with this. The pandemic is not going away. Self-care is in the literature. It's one of the most important things that we need when we talk about those teams at the school division levels. We've got to care for the caregivers. So I think that reminder is a great thing to add as well. And then again, not losing sight of what, as we've continued to say, our, you know, our students of color, our students from limited lower income backgrounds, our ELL students, English language learning students have really, um, some of them have really struggled during the pandemic. And then the gender nonconforming um, and young women in particular have been impacted with some of those mental health concerns. And then we've talked overriding about the homelessness, but food insecurity has been a big link as well. And that can 
present in any number of households. So thinking about that. And then I, I continue subgroups, our Asian American population with what's been happening with blame and disparaging um, acts uh, due to the pandemic. And then I think in Central Virginia, our Native population so often underlooked. And, you know, some of these populations have disproportionately been impacted not only by uh, lack of medical services, but, but by death and by doubt. So thinking about our subgroups again is so important realizing that within those, there are real individual strengths and family strengths that we want to celebrate, look at those positive assets for and augment and uh, for um, other families in those similar subgroups. So this conversation has been so enriching and we've got such a wealth of experience on this call. I do want to make the point that there are hundreds of student support personnel in metropolitan Richmond schools that are doing really incredible work under really unorthodox circumstances every day. And so one thing that I really hope comes out of this, besides just this idea of what we want student services to look like moving forward, I I hope we also celebrate the work of these practitioners and all the incredible things that they do. Um, So thank you all for for sharing your time and perspective today. Um, I definitely learned a lot and I'm sure everyone who's been listening has too. Um, And we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you would like to continue this conversation, we hope that you will join us for our 2021 Merck Conference on Friday, October 22nd on the online Hopin.2 platform. Tickets are available now and there are special rates for VCU and Merck school divisions. You can register on our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash conference. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash conference. While you are there, you can also check out Merck projects and reports on prominent issues in public education. Sign up for our stakeholder email listserv to stay up to date with our latest research and resources. Uh, You can also listen to other episodes from this series and subscribe to Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the Merck website. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks to Donna, Shanita, Alex, Lauren, Erica, and James for sharing their perspective today. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.